when I came to LA on that spring break, like the first time I ever came here, um, my stepmom knew someone that had moved out here and he's like, well, we're going to a movie premiere. And so she was like, well, Los Angeles movie premiere, That what a Los Angeles thing to do. And we went to the premiere of Battle for Los Angeles and I was shocked at how few people were eating popcorn or drinking anything more than a Dasani water. (laughs) (laughs) And they had a message before the movie played that if you leave the theater, you can't come back in. (laughs) Mm. And I was like, what? And it's not like every movie theater is like that, but like the one that we had gone to was like this kind of- No in and outs. Right, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, like, you know, the opening shot where it just pans downtown L.A., there's roaring applause. And I was like, OK, let's. I've been there. Down. I've been there. <laughs> right. I've been there. Man, this is the first time L.A.'s ever been in a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do really I enjoy the opening sequence of the movie Drive because um, he drives through downtown but it's not like showing you this is downtown, you know? Yeah. It's just like I recognize all of it. And now Miho said that she could recognize it in commercials, but now I can recognize it like there was a tunnel that we used to live right by that we would walk under to go to downtown. Uh, We'd walk under the 110. And I can't remember. I think it's on first. It has to be first street. Um, but that tunnel is in like every car commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's either that, or they're like driving up the one Oh one somewhere on like a, on the winding coastal highway. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they, and they, where there's no trees, but somehow like someone has like laid a big bag of dried fall leaves freshly on the road so that when the car goes through, they all, they all whisk up in the air. But when you do the wide shot, you're like, wait a second. Where's the forest that provided all these leaves? I want some palm fronds thrown in the way. <laughs> Let's puncture a tire. It's like they 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 flew in all this foliage specifically from the from the northeast just to lay on the ground in California so you could yeah, see how crows. fast these cars are going. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the ordinary. We didn't write the rules. We just ride the tone. can tell me josh how good was it how good was what well you wanted to do this meteor episode so how good was it how was the was the movie good i didn't i didn't see the movie you had to enjoy don't look up for us to do this oh god (laughs) oh god so did you watch it of course not what what was it even on it was on netflix 
still boycotting. I thought everybody was in this together, but I guess uh, not. You're still on the on the Chappelle thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I I I did watch it. It's not terrible, but the uh, you know, the, I I don't think it's as smart as a lot of the uh, the mainstream centrist democrats who enjoy it are saying that it is because they're like oh my god no one's ever put an allegory together like this for climate change to really make all these people wake <laughs> up and i'm like yeah i think like kind of all media for like 30 years has been doing allegories for climate change i saw somebody reply to an ap story about climate change and they're like as long as we don't look up i'm like shut up just <laughs> shut up if, if anything don't look up should just be a direct it's not an analog. It's not uh, an object lesson for some other cataclysmic event. It should just be a story about, hey, guys, we don't do enough to map <laughs> asteroids and space rocks that, are to go that could potentially wipe out the entire, all everything that's alive on the planet, or at least do a lot of damage to a lot of populated areas. Um, maybe just don't don't look into it as a climate change thing. Just look at it specifically for what it's saying, because we actually don't do any of the asteroid stuff either. <laughs> yeah, that's that was an amazing fact to uncover on like the NASA website where they're like, yeah, you know, we just don't know where they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the 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 sobering thing to bring up at the very beginning of the Tunguska episode is that if another uh, space rock the size of the rock that exploded in the air above Tunguska, Siberia in 1908. If if another one was nearby, uh, we'd we'd have no idea. We we don't know. It, we would we would know just like the people in 1908 knew. We would know when we saw the flash in the sky and heard the explosion. That's when we'd know it was close because we don't monitor anything that that's that's that size. We know where the yeah. super big rocks are, and we know like where some of the stuff that's like on consistent orbits is that we can consistently say, oh, we know where it went past the sun, and we know where it's going to come out on the other side, and we know where all those things are, but. These types of things that could do a lot of damage, no clue, no clue, no clue where they are. Yeah, it's the the size range that they start to designate things. Um, this is my contribution to the episode uh, from NASA was they, they categorize them based on how large the objects are. And the science team determines that the impact from objects of whatever size would only produce regional effects if it's up to, I think, 140 meters yeah. in size. Which is still uh, like almost three times the size of the Tunguska rock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, they're saying like it would only produce regional problems. Like, that's a, you well, know. Yeah, they're saying region like we talk about regions in the United States, I think. Like, like the southeast. The southwest or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just an entire conference gone. It would only take out like half of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, and the southern part of California. Just regional damage. <laughs> Just regional. Kiss your avocados goodbye. <laughs> um, but then the next uh, largest size would be subglobal, <laughs> which is Im an impressive feat of language. Yeah. That I, it would be 300 meters wide. I guess that just means it's going to do damage to like a quarter of a hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> I think they mean it's just 
not killing everyone. Right. It, the, it's not going to end the planet, but it's going right. to be a bad time. <laughs> uh, then global effects from 0.6 miles up. And I loved the little fact that they threw in there with Bennu, like the large asteroid. Uh-huh. Um, I, I didn't know this. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'll be dead by then. But it is predicted to pass within Earth and Moon's orbit in 2135, and that's going to affect its trajectory. And they don't know exactly how it will affect it, you know, gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, but they think that that could lead to a potential Earth impact uh, between 2175 and 2199. And yeah. it's not a huge, it's one in 2,700, but that's still way more. <laughs> it's, it's pretty high. Uh, right. when, when you're talking about, and you know, that, that falls in line, like, um, uh, uh, a rock that's 30 to 50 meters wide, the sort of expectancy of that hitting the planet is uh, once every 500 to thousand years. So, you know, then you're talking about when you scale that rock up, now you're talking about once every 10,000 years, and then you get to like dinosaur sized end of end of everything living on the planet sized rocks and you're talking like once every uh few million years or once every few hundred million years type of type of timeline but um it's not like like we talked about before in the asteroid episode it's not like those things are like on schedule you know it's it's sort of like uh when we talk about uh storms and climate change like you talk about a 500-year flood. It's not like that only happens once every 500 years. You might have a 500-year level flood event and then not have another one for 700 years and then have three or four of them back-to-back in like a five-year time span. Um, or like now where weather is getting more cataclysmic, like in Dallas, where we used to think a 100-year flood event was rare and now we're having 100 and 250-year flood events seemingly once every couple of years. Um, so, so that, that's the other thing to know is like a big part of this discussion with Tunguska is there's a lot of conjecture about why it happened or what was the cause of it happening. Cause it happened in 1908. It's not a lot of great, um, scientific measuring devices around back then. And it happened in probably the most remote area of the planet that you could possibly put it in other than like Antarctica. And in a country that had a little bit of turmoil yeah, over the next there few was some, years. There were some things going on between 1908 and 19, you know, 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the the one thing to that I want to like just my positioning statement up front is while we don't know, and I'm talking me and Eric, but also science doesn't have a definitive answer as to what exactly happened or what exactly caused the explosion that caused the devastation in 1908 in the Tunguska region of Siberia. Um, this is a good episode where science literacy is very important because not knowing something and saying that we don't have a conclusive answer from a scientific standpoint does not necessarily mean that just because we don't have a definitive answer means that any type of conjecture for what happened has an equal weight 
to it being a a valid possibility. There is a thing called the probability density function. And when scientists talk about unconclusive results, they're talking about it in in a range of probabilities. So when scientists uh decide that this is most likely probabilistically a aerial explosion of a meteor they're saying that with a high degree of probabilistic confidence once you get away from the airburst meteor theory the probability drops to near zero for all of the other possibilities that you might come up with even though we don't necessarily have the direct evidence for the airburst theory, it doesn't mean that the airburst theory is just as valid as aliens shot a laser at the planet from another world in 1908 type of theory. And it looked like an airburst. Right, right. This is this is where um, I think just sort of a general observation of all humanity where science literacy really matters and understanding probability versus certainty is very important and not just saying, oh, they're, they don't have a conclusive understanding from the science field, so it could be anything. All of the options are equally valid. That is not, that is not what we're saying, even though we will say that it is an inconclusive result at this moment. Yeah, that that's just a... A fun science literacy thing that we've all been learning over the last couple of years is uh, not great for <laughs> garnering public support for one strong case. Well, it's, it's, it's the whole certitude thing. Everyone wants to know something being told to them is a 100% fact to 100% certainty. And that is just not the case for almost every single thing in the universe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like even when you get all the way down to the quantum level, like the uncertainty principle is the thing that defines reality. So their probability is the thing that matters most in these types of sort of science conversations where imagination and theory all come together to try to put together the story of what happened. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed some of just the the numbers from the event. Give like me some they, numbers. <laughs> that it was estimated, I guess, more closely to the time that it was a 10 to 20 megaton airburst. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been other... Uh, let's see. What were some of the numbers? There's been other reports that accounted for like the material inside or... Um, guess like the angle that it was traveling at and stuff to make the range more between three to thirty megatons. Mm-hmm. But comparing that to like bombs at the time, uh, certainly at the time it was huge. They didn't yeah. have nuclear weapons. No, no back nuclear. Then. Even though that is one of the conjecture theories that uh, the Russian czar at the time was secretly working with the with his cousin from Prussia to develop an atomic weapon and they had built this facility up there in Siberia and the very first test of the bomb went so wrong that it wiped out everything and all the evidence of the factory and the scientists who were working on it and that it was actually the first radioactive explosion on the planet done by man but we lost all the evidence of it because they blew themselves up 
which again, <laughs> the probability of that is zero. <laughs> <laughs> but you could come up with that theory if you'd like, but it's, the probability is zero. I think it was, did I even write it down? Um, no, I did not. Uh, it was what, a thousand times larger than the Hiroshima explosion? Yeah. Yeah, so it was roughly the exact, the equivalent of Mount St. Helens or one and a half times Mount St. Helens. And the next, like, explosion comparable didn't happen until the 50s with the Castle Bravo, like, tests where they were doing the the thermonuclear explosions. Yeah. Um, And that was at 15 megatons. But they had only predicted that it was going to be six megatons. So, like, it was out of control when they dropped that on the Bikini Atoll, mm-hmm. which, um, fun, fun spinoff for all of you parents out there that uh, it's predicted that's what kind of the backstory of uh, SpongeBob comes from. They live in Bikini Bottom. <laughs> bikini Bottom. So they. The, the, the reason we have all these sentient sponges is because they're yeah, radioactive yeah. waste from an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> hey. Oh, that's that is that is a good that is a fun bit. So um, so this thing happens in June of 1908, and you know we talk about. Siberia, so everyone's probably imagining, oh, this is some frozen tundra of coldness where no human could possibly live. And that is true for part of the year, but in the summertime, it's actually, uh, temperature-wise, it's it's pretty... It's pretty nice, like uh, it's balmy, isn't it? Seventies. Uh, you're you got a you got uh, you got a lot lot of sun, lot lot of lot of lot of fresh air, but uh, the problem is is that underneath that Siberian frozen tundra up there, whenever everything melts, um, the snow layers and everything melts, um, the underneath layer of the ground is just basically peat and moss bogs. Like It's not a solid ground surface that's beneath it. All that stuff is frozen during the winter time and then there's snow and stuff piled on and then all the ice and snow melts and that just turns into a huge swamp. I don't know if you've ever like walked on a peat bog or like when I was um a sophomore in high school I worked at Callaway's nursery and we had to cut peat sometimes into like big squares and so there were there would be like these artificial bogs where you could harvest it and you'd cut it out um, and it's weird to walk on cause it's like, uh, it feels like you're walking on like bean bags that are floating on the ocean. <laughs> like they all sink in every step you take and stuff like that. Um, so the, uh, expeditions, uh, 20 years later to go up and try to examine the damage from this event were very difficult. This is very treacherous land, um, almost impassable by even uh, animals and stuff. There's like, there's not a lot of hard surfaces to walk through. There's not. It's not like Yellowstone where there's just nice trails and things all over the place. This is completely overgrown, and it is one of the most densest populations of mosquitoes in the entire planet during the summer months. Um, 
it's common for stories of people, the clouds of mosquitoes are so thick that you can't like see your hand outstretched in front of your face um, in this area. So doing any kind of research, especially in the 1920s with the type of equipment you would have, ah, man, j- just putting myself in these guys' position who are would go on these expeditions in the summertime there to try to do scientific research... I, you couldn't pay me enough, I don't think. It just no. sounds absolutely miserable. Like, I, I thought maybe, like, voyaging down the Amazon sounded miserable. But this sounds more miserable than that. Like, <laughs> they're, they're having to wear these types of net suits, triple-layered net suits to prevent the mosquitoes, and they're still getting eaten alive. Um, the, mos- the mosquitoes are an actually interesting angle. The mosquitoes are so bad there that there actually was a theory that the cl- there was a giant cloud of mosquitoes that happened to be hovering above this boggy, swampy area, coincidentally at the time when uh, a space rock broke through the atmosphere. And when it collided with the cloud of dense mosquitoes, they are the thing that caused the massive explosion. Because, <laughs> and, and this is not without like some sort of uh, scientific merit. Like, you know, before this time, they had, it was, it's still pretty recent knowledge at this time that like uh, they had figured out the massive combustible nature of sawdust. And, you know, how that interacts with dynamite and other things like that. So there had already been like lots of lab studies of when you condense wood into dust particles in the air, you can flash light those and they cause like a huge airburst type of explosion from from sawdust. And so they simply just took that and uh, and applied the sawdust principles to mosquitoes and we're like what if the mosquitoes were like sawdust and it just there were just so many of them that it, and it, they all exploded like careful whenever you've got your electric tennis racket out <laughs> but it's it sounds ridiculous until you see some of the footage from 1928 when Leonid Kulik is going on these expeditions and they're just entire bodies are just covered with mosquitoes <laughs> like I, it's so many mosquitoes I, I can't I can't describe <laughs> it to you in a way that that will really sell at home how bad the mosquito problem is yeah I not a fan of mosquitoes don't really have mosquitoes out here though so it's why uh, everyone wants West. to live in California yeah that's why we're all moving to Texas mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah, it wasn't mosquitoes that exploded that caused the airburst, but it is. I I can see why people would have would have like uh, put that theory together after seeing uh, the footage from Leonid Kulik's um, first expedition. He went on multiple expeditions um, to try to figure out what was up with Tunguska. His original theory was that it was a meteoroid impact. But at that time, they didn't know that um, meteorites could burst in the air because of the pressure uh, bubble that is put in front of them of, caused by the friction as they enter the atmosphere. Um, the, the knowledge was such that if anything came through the atmosphere from space, it would have to hit the ground. And that when it hit the ground, it would cause a crater. And so the main focus of Kulik's investigations were to try to find the location of that crater. 
And the Russian government was happy to fund him because he said, hey, if I find the crater, I could find the actual rock. And that rock will have like space iron, which could be like more strong than any iron we've ever had. And we could use it for for whatever. And so the Russian government was. (laughs) Would that be true? No, it wouldn't be true. But I mean, (laughs) you you would be finding something that would be like potentially a rare metal that other countries wouldn't have and i guess at that time when you don't have like a lot of cataloging or understanding of all the different types of space rocks and where all those elements necessarily come from you might think that you would be finding some sort of special special material that maybe no one else on earth has ever found before and then you could somehow synthesize that to your advantage yeah that sounded like some turn of the century wisdom yeah <laughs> <clears throat> But, you know, his, he wasn't really, like, into the whole, like, we've got to find this for for Mother Russia. He was mostly uh, just a scientist. He was very into the concept of minerals and, and then studying minerals on the earth and then trying to find minerals in the ground in the Tunguska region that would help identify that they were not from earth minerals or exoplanetary minerals in the ground and stuff like that. He was, he was pretty cutting edge for his time when it came to that type of science. He identified a few lakes around the area that he thought were potential uh, craters for where the meteorite finally impacted the earth. Um, He even like drained a couple of the lakes But then he found that those lakes had like tree stumps and roots all across the bottom of the lakes, which predated the 1908 impact event so that there's no way that those lakes would actually be impact craters if there's got living things in them that are from before the impact. Um, So he ended up dying unsatisfied and never actually finding the the crater spot and also not living long enough to understand the airburst theory because in the 1940s when the nazis invaded russia um kulik volunteered for the russian army and he was captured by the nazis and died in a nazi prison camp in 1942 so the guy who was probably most well versed had been to the region the most had done the most interviews with the most people that had lived in the in the area at the time got the most eyewitness accounts had done the most actual data science and a data analysis died in a nazi prison camp and a lot of his stuff was lost to history um because he's dead so how did he get into a nazi prison camp um as far as i know is he volunteered for the russian army then they took then at the in a battle he was taken prisoner and I don't know if it was the battle for St. Petersburg. I was reading this before. Uh, no, it just says he was he was paramilitary militia. He was captured by the German army and died in a prisoner of war camp of typhus. <laughs> That'll also do it. Hold on, let me show you something. Okay. Eric's leaving the room. He went to go grab something. He's walking back. No, we don't do show and tell that often because this is an audio medium. 
but I went to the record store. Well, I went to the thrift store the other day and found this record. <laughs> so it, it was it's not the same thing, but semi-related. It is the uh, a Russian album, uh, Songs of Our Days, from a composer dedicated to the memory of those who died during the blockade of Leningrad. Oh, the front cover here. We got dead bodies in the streets. <laughs> yep. So, that's how you, uh, but that's a, how you want to remember them, right? Well, we've got here a bunch of, bunch of Russian military men dancing in joy. But they, the, well, at least they didn't have a picture of them doing the cannibalism. No, no, yeah, that's not uh, depicted anywhere here. They don't have like um, a cannibalism song. It's like, ha ha, Nazis, you can't, you can't <laughs> blockade us. We'll just eat each other. <laughs> now we've got a uh, it's an intro it's about russia you know so it's about storms about spring about holidays about war those who died in action childhood <laughs> <laughs> uh, but come get me columbia records because this one was not for sale Woo. just a demo record anyways <clears throat> yeah the uh w- random note also from Kulik's deal was he took a lot of tons of photos like all the photos that you have probably seen of Tunguska the old black and whites that show all the trees falling down and all the aerial photography of uh, just the big butterfly sort of splay of the trees all falling down in a blast pattern those were all taken um, in Kulik's expeditions he did you know many from the ground but he also did aerial surveys of the whole of the whole area too and uh, the, uh, I guess Russia was having a problem with uh, the old film negatives um, because they're so combustible. Like they would, they had them all stored in certain places, and they were exploding and burning buildings down. So they had, I think it was in the fifties, they had a nationwide like all the archives that had any of that old type of camera film that was so combustible they destroyed all of it. Yeah, that, that was nuts to me. <laughs> I read that too. It was in 1975. There you go, 75. And they they burned all of the nitrate film, yeah. um, which is I didn't know this that it that's like just celluloid. Yeah. Which, I mean, I it is celluloid is still used today. It said that like the main products are like ping pong balls now, so that's why you can't pop them in the microwave. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I found that fascinating that there's just this nationwide order <laughs> to burn all negatives, <laughs> not because like you know it's got a political figure. Yeah, yeah, we don't and want it's, it, it had nothing to do with like a political coercion or we're trying to rewrite history. It was strictly because we don't want our buildings burning down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good enough reason, I suppose. Um, they all saw Inglorious Bastards, and they knew yeah. how it ended. I loved, I mean, imagine how weird coming upon that area would be, too. Like, the trees falling over, yeah, yeah, I get that. But then seeing trees just standing upright that have no branches yeah. that are just torched is has got to be wild. Like, was there speculation on that? Like, what did they, did they think the rock, like, was a donut? <laughs> well, the there was a lot of conjecture early on because, like, Kulik was one of the 
few who was like, definitely meteorite impact. And even like the firsthand accounts, even from the couple newspapers that actually covered eyewitness accounts of it in 1908, definitely said that they saw a meteorite streak across the sky. But the, uh, the problems with that was when you had the evidence of all of the fallen down trees and stuff, um, geologists at the time had been doing a lot of uh, studies in Germany and Germany had a has a lot of like high volcanic regions. And so some of the geologists of the time when they saw those pictures were like, oh, I know what that is. That's a volcano. <laughs> and so and they're and they're like maybe maybe not one where uh like you have a big explosion from a mountain but where you have a uh an underground volcano that releases a lot of gases but not actually a lava plume and then when those gases get released the pressure of the gases being released are what laterally blew all the trees down um, so that was like one of the prevail early prevailing theories was like, if it's not a meteor to how could a meteor do this? And we don't have any crater. So it's got to be something else. So then for a while, people were like, well, it had to be some kind of underground gas release from a volcano. And that that was what people thought, oh, that makes sense because the trees burn, but we didn't see any lava and we don't we haven't found any rock or a crater or anything. So that's got to be what it is. Right, guys. Um, and you know, it, in the fifties, um, Russia started doing like, it's, it's a lot of the, so you have Kulik in the, in the 1920s doing research, then a lot of stuff happens in Russia for for like 20 years and you don't get back to like real scientific studying or trying to figure out what happened there until like the late fifties. So who knows what happened during that time? I don't know, but just for some reason they couldn't really focus on any kind of science. <laughs> um, but they do um, do lots of tests where they like have uh, they, there's videos of this on the internet, but they put like uh, these little sticks of wood attached to like little metal uh, little pieces of metal that are stabbed into uh, a piece of styrofoam. And uh, then they test different like um, explosion type of blast pressures above it to the side of it to all around in different angles. And they're trying to recreate the butterfly blast pattern of what the trees did with these little uh, wooden sticks to see if they could get them to lay down in the same pattern. And when they did an above an above the the model blast that focused all of the energy straight down um they replicated the pattern exactly of this butterfly image of where all the trees radiate flat down from a central point but then the cluster of trees that are right in the center stay upright because the air is the the pressure wave is pushing straight down on them so they're not going to fall over only when the pressure wave hits the ground does it start to move horizontally and laterally across the ground and once it does that then it starts pushing all the trees down that are surrounding in the area so why is it like in a butterfly pattern because isn't there kind of like a strip where it's not as laid down and this has been done in in more modern laboratory studies analysis of it and this is very important for the um 
the uh, first eye, uh, first-hand accounts of the observations of it. So what happens is when the pressure wave builds up at the front of the meteor as it as it enters the atmosphere before it starts to break up, there is an envelope at the front. And we kind of talked about this like in the baseball physics and some other things, but there's there's like a a pocket that's at the front of the of the deal. And there's also a pocket that's at the back, like a uh, where the air is getting sucked back behind the behind the meteor as it comes into the earth, into the atmosphere. So when it explodes, you basically have these two kind of isolated protected zones at the nose and at the tail, where the energy dis as the, it explodes, all of the energy goes down to the surface of the planet, and then it expands out in these butterfly wings. But it's because of and I can only, I don't know the exact mathematics. I can only say because they ran 50 million different uh, models of this in a supercomputer um, that at a certain angle, which is about 30 degrees at a certain velocity, which I think is like 30 kilometers a second, you create this type of blast pattern where basically the front is does not radiate out and the tail does not radiate out and everything else just goes out to the sides. Okay. So but the reason that's important is once they got that done in the supercomputer modeling, then they also contributed some of the modeling the the scientist who was doing this modeling and I forget his name off the top of my head was one of the guys who was involved with um monitoring and measuring with scientific instruments the Shoemaker-Levy comet impact on Jupiter back in the 90s. And one of the things they found from that is when the comet broke up and exploded in Jupiter's atmosphere, um, it caused this huge, hot, super, super heated gas plume, not just when the force went straight down to the planet, but one that shot straight up out of the, out of the atmosphere of the planet up you know like a thousand kilometers into the into the air and that superheated tower of gas and plasma once it gets up so high it eventually cools and then it falls back on top of itself and so you basically get you have an explosion of the meteorite force goes down into the ground knocks all the trees down you have a flash fire event that happens where the heat is so hot from the exploding meteor that it sets the entire forest on fire but then the pressure wave is so fast that it extinguishes the flame so like the heat happens everything in instantly ignites right few seconds after the huge pressure wave comes down and extinguishes all the flames so that's why you have these like perfectly charred flash fried trees everywhere and then from the rebound off of the surface this huge column of heat and plasma shoots up through the atmosphere way high, like higher than where the orbit of the international space station is right now. And when that column falls back down to earth, you have another exploding event, basically another ignition event, all of the friction and everything coming back down. And you have like instances of super lightning and things that happen because of all the particles and things collapsing back down on top of themselves as they re-enter the atmosphere and hit down again. 
So when you have these um, eyewitness accounts that talk about one like faint boom and then like two big booms and then you hear other booms in succession going on, it could be multiple things. It could be, well, you hear the sort of breaking of the sound barrier as the meteorite enters the atmosphere. So you hear that sonic boom. Then you hear the exploding boom, and maybe the explosion wasn't a singular explosion, but a cascade of explosions going bam, bam, boom, as like certain parts started to break up, and then the big one happened once it reached a critical mass of the pressure in front of the thing coming inside of it. So you might have had multiple crack, 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 and then a big boom, um, and then you have these things where, where people are describing them like thunder, and essentially it is like thunder in a thunderstorm, but on a super scale, and instead of having like clouds and that type of friction create the thunder from a static charge, the static charges are a lot bigger because you have this big plume of hot plasma and dust that falls back on itself, and so you have even higher static reactions and bigger booms and things like that. So it could, when you hear people say, oh, we heard you know, exploding sounds that sounded like artillery going for 10 minutes or for 30 minutes or for an hour. Um, it could, one, when they got these eyewitness accounts, it was over 20 years after the event had actually happened. So people might misremember things over time, which we know we're not, our, our memories are incredibly fallible. But two, um, those things could actually happen with just a singular airburst event. It doesn't have to be like a volcano going off or a, an earthquake going off or some uh, UFO battle with a bunch of explosions between ships fighting each other or something like that. It can just be this sort of gradual explosion of a rock as it travels through the atmosphere and then you hearing the after effects of the, of the superheated column falling back down on top of itself and all that type of stuff. Has that been witnessed before with any of the other like meteors or have they just not been big enough? They just haven't been bi- witnessed on Jupiter. Okay. <clears throat> but not, not the ones. Cause I was, I was like trying to compare it to the other, like the, um, the Chelyabinsk. Chelyabinsk. Thank you. Um, the one that exploded in 2013. Yeah. And because I was also like, you know, uh, I was imagining the the meteor that killed all the dinosaurs. Um, I can't remember how fast that one was going, but I was like, well, if this Tunguska one was going 27 kilometers a second, like 60,000 miles an hour, Mach 80, <laughs> I was like, no way you could see that because these eyewitness reports of like a streak in the sky and stuff. So then I was like, well, I know, you know, similar meteorites. So I looked it up and the the cello whatever one was going uh, 19 kilometers per second. So it's it's doable to see it for sure. So yeah. it was kind of a, you know. And most of the people who witnessed smaller, it, right? most of the people who witnessed it were south in, in more populated areas in Russia. And they were looking up to the northeast seeing it run away from them. So the the thing was moving, coming from a westerly direction. And when they looked to the north, it was like moving away from them on over the horizon. So they saw the streak. 
They heard the boom. They saw the streak first, and then they saw like a huge explosion just on the other side of the horizon. They saw what they thought was a pillar of two giant pillars going straight up into the air uh, of light. And so there, and then they heard the sound because they're like, some of these are like 70 miles, 100 miles away from the impact event. Right, yeah. And they're still getting like, <laughs> knocked down out of the, <laughs> out of their house or on their porch and stuff from the from the pressure wave when it hits them which i don't know if any of if you saw it or if anyone else saw it but we had the the tonga volcano explosion over the weekend and um there's like some cool footage of that from a ship that's out on the ocean off the coast and he's like uh, 15 miles or something from the epicenter. So you see the you see the video footage of the explosion happen and all of the pyroclastic cloud go way up in the sky. And then you hear the, the captain of the boat say, get ready, we're going to get the pressure wave. And you can count like 11 seconds. And then all of a sudden, the loudest cacophony of sound shakes the whole boat and it lists big time both going side to side but that's just how long <laughs> the the disparity between uh the speed of sound and the, and the speed of light are you know and th that's what we're what the people in in russia were experiencing where they saw the flash and it was like minutes later where they heard the booms but that's how loud it was too and in some instances um from from measured history, it seems like this was the loudest sound ever heard on the planet during human history. Ever. It's the loudest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> I mean, makes sense. I know the, <laughs> the discrepancy between uh, speed of light and speed of sound is... It, it always uh, reminds me when I was running track someone who obviously didn't understand the body mechanics of being in blocks was like don't listen for the gun to go off you need to be looking to see when it goes off <laughs> like how am i gonna be you know a third of the way up the stretch with my neck cranked all the way back around <laughs> well he's not shooting uh, the gun from a mile away <laughs> yeah, yeah he's yeah. right next to you <laughs> I mean, I think like, at, you know, it may be even like collegiate level, um, but I'm pretty sure in the Olympics, they at least they have like speakers or whatever, I think. at your Yeah, block, right, right, just right behind you to make sure that it's the most, you know, uh, fair possible. But yeah, I was just like, listen, I don't even want to run 300 meter hurdles right now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So the the sound thing is pretty is pretty amazing. Like, there's obviously been louder sounds, you know, that the dinosaur asteroid was definitely louder sound, but not heard by humans. And hey, tell me about your loud sounds, Dan. <laughs> so, uh, just loud sound-wise, like, this thing was heard around half of the world and felt around the entire world. So, um, like, the other loud sounds are, you know bomb like the atomic blasts which this is bigger than and the uh the black like people have compared it also also like the sound of certain artillery guns in world war one like there were some huge artillery guns before you know modern rocket propelled grenades and stuff were invented and those things were like 
deafeningly loud. Like the people who fired them only fired them for a little bit of time and they lost all their hearing type of loud. But um, as far as a sound that was, everyone knows the exact time and second that that it happened because it was recorded uh, <laughs> like over half the hemisphere on the other side of the earth. It was also heard. There's never been another sound like that. <laughs> That's nuts. Even so, how did they keep the shock wave? I guess down whenever they were doing the thermonuclear test. Was it because it was not a air burst? It was like um, in the water. I, yeah, I think those big ones were done underwater. Although the Russian one might have been done way up in the atmosphere in the Arctic, the last the last super huge Russian nuclear test, which is like the biggest one ever bomb. done. Yeah, um, but I think the other ones were done underground or underwater. At least the most of the American big ones beyond um, uh, the ones that they used in World War II. Most of those tests, once you got into hydrogen and the other ones, those were done underground and in the water. Oh. Well, of course, though, like we learned in the water, like sound can is amplified and can travel even, you know, longer distances and stuff. So maybe if we had a bunch of underwater sonar, we'd hear much louder sounds. But we just we only hear stuff up here outside of the water. That's why you can't communicate with whales. They're all deaf now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that not, you know, you say that, but it, there is some evidence that shows that things have gotten so loud in the ocean that they don't communicate nearly as well as they used to. <laughs> Good. Uh, speaking of the the volcano, <laughs> that was Miho and I were like contemplating going surfing this past weekend because the uh, no recent oil spills, of which we've had two recently. Oh yeah. Um, uh, I th- they've pretty much cleaned up the human sewage that was dumped in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> last month. Uh, so we were like, all right, well we can maybe go out. Uh, and I think I was like maybe feeding the dogs and my phone just blares with a tsunami. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Tsunami alert. Cuz of the uh, so. cuz of the Tonga explosion, you guys got a tsunami yeah. alert from that? Yeah, it um I mean, maybe uh maybe Regonk Force could attest to it more, but the I think San Diego they were like the piers and stuff, there were some boats maybe capsized, I believe, and some flooding. But they, of course, they have like, you know, the tsunami alert um, just because you can't, you don't know how big, even Mm -hmm. in modern day, like it could just some strange occurrence happen and it'd be much larger. Uh, But there were beaches shut down, but people who are dumb surfers were going out because they're like, I got to catch this. It's it's going to be the biggest wave of my life. That's not what a tsunami is, though. <laughs> like, look at videos of a tsunami. It's just suddenly water filling yeah, up the ground. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's coming uh, from it's the not bottom. Not from. It's not a big cas- capsizing wave. Yeah. Not a tidal. We were watching force. the news though, and uh, they were out there interviewing people who had gone to see the tsunami and they're just like yeah i just kind of wanted to get a glimpse you know it's really exciting i'm like you know there's people dying like on the other (laughs) side of the globe right (laughs) like there were some islands uh i believe in tonga that were completely covered (laughs) with Mm -hmm. ocean water oh yeah i mean they're already you know with sea level rise they're already you know right right there next to the water just 
just lipping over the top of the whole island if you wanted. <laughs> God, that's got to be so terrifying. Dude, I yeah. Um, the tsunami thing is probably the most terrifying, I think. Like, we got one when we were in Hawaii one time. There was a tsunami warning, and, like, the the feeling of, like, you know, if it's really a bad one, there's nowhere we there's nowhere we can go. There's nowhere no, we can go. No. Yeah. <laughs> like, cool. I'll and, I'll and go it's... get in the top level of this of this condo that's next to the beach. <laughs> I mean, that's like the best you could do, but the amount of pressure from the water, it could just, you know, whoop, lift the whole thing. <laughs> And uh, yeah, now you're a floating condo. Uh, yeah, and you're like the most isolated islands in in all of the ocean. It's not like you can just quickly run up to the mainland to get, to get away from it in Hawaii. You know, there's I mean, they get some good elevation. So if you wanted to get up in the mountains on some of the islands, you could get away from it. But if you get swept away, there's no uh, oh, I'll just end up on the coast a little bit down <laughs> down the way here. Yeah, <laughs> you're just out in the middle of the fucking ocean yeah i think the oh and that was the other thing with uh the tsunami in california at least uh maybe on the west coast i'm not i'm not great with tides um but it hit during high tide as well so it was it was uh i think on some docks in la was maybe like eight feet above where like the water line was i mean that's a huge increase for mm -hmm. the just oh <laughs> the yeah amount of water coming in i don't know water's scary like every time i get in the ocean it's a like all right this is this is a big big deal right now <laughs> <laughs> well like um uh, you know that's that's one of the more interesting things of the of the Tunguska event was even though in 1908 the world's not nearly as populated as it is now, where it hits is on the same latitude of like four major Russian met metropolitan areas at the time. So if like we're talking just like a matter of 20 or 30 minutes of time of the Earth rotating of it coming in and it could have like wiped out a few hundred thousand people. No problem. Yeah. Like the, the area that it flattened with trees and there were like what, uh, windows blown out like 300, 400 miles away. Oh yeah. People knocked over. I loved the, um, injury reports counted fainting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I, you hear the loudest sound ever in your life. I imagine a lot of people had heart attacks that instant. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the because you're thinking like maybe it's the return of god or who knows what's going through your head in 1908 when you see something like that like armageddon is happening now or whatever <laughs> right and the like uh what, were, what was the name of them like the event people yeah the reindeer herder um, people they uh they reported that there were three deaths from it because they were like nomadic mm-hmm herders that lived uh kind of in the region and there's thought um, that i believe it well there's thought even that there might been uh, a couple full tribal groups that always camped in certain areas along the tunguska river in the summertime mm -hmm. that were completely wiped out so you might have had a few thousand people wiped out in that area and there's just no 
no remnants of them. There was no one yeah, to tell no the to tale. Know. There's no one left over. All of their, you know, they, they don't build long-lasting huts or anything, so there's not, like, a bunch of debris or things left over after the event happened. Everyone was probably, you know, flash-fried themselves. Um, so there, there's probably more than just those few reported deaths because anybody who was actually camping anywhere near the epicenter was uh, vaporized. Yeah, I mean, it's the this, uh, radius of the... Was it the flattening or the explosion um, was... Okay, come on. My notes are jumping all over. Uh, oh, the the flattened trees, yeah, was uh, 830 square miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, Houston itself is 669 square miles. Yeah. So, and everyone hates driving through Houston. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the one that I... The... One eyewitness account that I took away a lot from was the guy who was like uh, 30 or 40 miles away who was talking about how he saw the thing hit and he saw the the huge column going up into the sky and then he felt the massive amount of heat from the side that he was fa- on his side of his body that was facing the explosion and he noticed like his shirt was catching on fire on that side. <laughs> Just the heat, just that heat wave from 40 miles away when that column started collapsing back down, like he, it, it caught his shirt on fire. <laughs> so are we due for another one of these? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's been a hundred years, uh, and it wouldn't take one that's even like half the size to do some pretty serious damage and like even um uh the the one that hit in 2013 um even though it was much smaller um it did quite a bit of damage just because of all the glass that it shattered and most of the injuries were people getting cut up and uh, from from glass damages and stuff like that but the other the other cool thing about the 2013 um impactor was or airburst was that uh it's not just that we had like cell phone video and dash cam video from all the Russian cars who are worried about insurance fraud. So they all have dash cams on them. So we got the footage of it, but we had all over the world and all around orbiting the planet. We had satellites and we got tons of scientific data from that event. And that event really solidified all of the modeling for Tunguska. Once we had real data on a real rock coming in at a certain angle and how it exploded in the air and the type of, we know the exact megaton expenditure of the energy of that one, there's a way to scale that up. And then we also know that, hey, there's not much left of that rock either even when we went and looked for it right away there was just very few sparse um things that we could find that would be evidence of that meteor um and when you know tunguska happened and then you don't have another 20 years before someone actually goes up to look for any evidence of the impactor and then it's a complete mossy peat bog that you can't walk in even if there were microscopic particles left over of the of the actual rock, 
um, they're probably lost to that swamp. Um, they've done, even in modern times, there's been hundreds of expeditions that are dredging parts of the swamp, uh, taking soil samples from all different types of depths because now they know like, okay, these swamps build up at sort of this kind of rate year over year. So we know we need to go down a certain level in order to get to what the dirt was in 1908. And um, just no evidence, no evidence of, uh, of any rare earth uh, metals, no evidence of, of any specks of space rock. Um, just nothing nothing that's definitive has been found as like oh this this is an actual piece of the rock that still survived but again understanding what we understand now about the velocity of the rock the size and the explosion the explosive energy and the heat it's very likely that every single bit of that impactor was completely vaporized when it exploded three to five miles above the surface so you don't think that the 2020 group of scientists that estimated that it was actually a 200 meter in diameter asteroid that glanced off the surface? It skipped. It did a skip. No, I, I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> I would love if that was actually the case because that's, I mean, surely that's happened at some on some planet at some point. Because you know you can't always have a direct impact, right? Right, but with just kind of with an atmosphere like our atmosphere, I would think if you came in at a shallow enough angle, it would skip off the atmosphere, not skip off the planet. But it skipped off the atmosphere so much that it exploded. It did a dip. It did a big enough dip, but then there there was this. The atmosphere got squished like three miles above the Earth, and then it slung. It did a slingshot and sent it back into space. <laughs> It was God dipping his Tostino scoop. The atmosphere is really like a trampoline. Like you just push it down and it just like, it keeps giving and giving and giving, but sometimes it doesn't break and then it just like rebounds you back into space. Yeah. Are you going to be testing out Jake's trampoline? Ooh, yeah. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. I'll definitely get on there. I want him him to put it close enough to the pool so he can jump off the trampoline into the pool. Because what's the point of having a pool and a trampoline if you're not going to do that? (laughs) <laughs> well, doesn't he have a five foot fence? Uh, not the law. Oh uh, yeah, he's got some sort of mesh fence that goes around to the pool to prevent the kids from drowning. Yeah, I know. Kids, man, they ruin trampolines and pools. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's most of my most all of my Tunguska notes. I uh, I had a a little bit more on some of the crazy uh, the crazy theories. But if you guys want to know any about them, there, there, I'll look it up. Fuck, I'll add it to the notes because there's like an interesting article about all of them. My favorite one though was um, <laughs> that it's a is a laser from a from another alien civilization. They uh they like got word of of our existence. Uh, like in the 1800s and from all those satellites yeah and they were like oh man we need to send them a message to let them know that we're there and they but they communicate with lasers and uh they just accidentally calibrated their laser a little too strong and when they when they did it uh it flattened that whole part of tunguska so (laughs) 
one, but the other, like the uh, the star system where where this planet was supposed to be located is like uh, over a hundred light years away. So I don't know how they they would have possibly like used some t- weird optical telescope to see that we existed like in the 1800s. I don't know. Not enough time. Yeah. Not enough time to send the late. Not enough time to do all this, guys. A hundred years prior, though, they were also riding around on horse and buggy. Um, but because they've never known war, they thought surely they'll advance <laughs> enough in 100 years. See, this this is the thing. It's like. Uh, uh, cool stuff happens right at the time when, right before Albert Einstein starts publishing, you know, his 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 works on relativity and stuff like that. And so you have just some of the greatest scientific conjecture of wild ass ideas coming out because, like, no one has like had this big humbling moment of, oh, okay, there's this Einstein guy and he came up with, real, okay, space time exists. Oh, all right, well. I guess that makes all my imagination moot. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to know, because like aliens weren't as popular until like the the comic books and stuff, right? Like the fifties after kind of Roswell stuff. Well, this um, Tunguska is sort of a Roswellian type of thing in Russia. Okay, and um. Like the uh, there's also the alien side of this also gets like uh, churned up in after the Roswell events in America during the UFO hysteria of the 50s and 60s. And you get a lot of that's also when you get the people going and finding the uh, old um, like cave paintings of the different nomadic tribes that used to live in Russia. And they're like, oh, man, look, these cave paintings look like aliens. And they're like, oh, maybe Tunguska was really the people that inhabited that area were really aliens from some other planet. And they had a ship and they were trying to go back to their home planet. And Tunguska was either their ship leaving and it left this big blast pattern in the background as it went back to its home planet. Or it was a rescue mission from another planet to come pick up their the people that they had left on Earth and the ship crashed when it was coming to save its other people. And so that's that's why that happened. So it's, you know, just like America, like uh, once you have a, a new pop culture lens to re-examine things on, you go back into history and you're like, oh, yeah, that could have been aliens, too. <laughs> yeah. What, what's the Scientology take on this? I don't know. Is there a Scientology take? I, I mean, I guess there's probably is one. Maybe it was uh, well, one of the DC-9s flying in space to, to go pick up uh pick up some new souls or drop off some new souls and some volcanoes how do you know about that (laughs) it's actually what they believe eric yeah wouldn't that be a turn of events if it came out that i was a scientologist ah i mean you're out there in california i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past you yeah i you know in orange county there's there's not a big um population that i've noticed we used to see them at the hospital we would go to for checkups and stuff um, and where I went to go see a therapist one time. It's like, you just need some breathing exercises, really. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think you should have this degree. <laughs> uh, they Their church was like right across the street, so they were always on the street corners. And it felt so predatory. 
because it's people, you know, in a hospital. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's uh, it's just like uh, if you want to make sure that uh, you get someone to convert to Christianity, go talk to them when they're on death row. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing with with Christianity and someone on death row. You're not getting the money from them, you know? <laughs> maybe he'll maybe he'll leave you the death row guy will leave you all of his personal effects and belongings to the church now <laughs> for your my last meal i would like the antidote <laughs> all right well that's all my russian tunguska siberian fun all right guys until next week bye